I'm glad you found your way to the Your Vet Wants You to Know podcast for more information about how to care for your pet. The show is designed to be educational and entertaining, but not to give a specific diagnosis or treatment for your animal. That job belongs to your veterinarian who knows your pet and wants to talk to you about what's going on with them. I'm here to be a resource only. Thanks and enjoy the show. As a curious pet owner, have you ever taken to the internet for more information? Maybe you want to know why your pet is itchy and what you can do about it. Maybe you're frustrated about the ear infections. Maybe you're looking for ways to make veterinary care more affordable. Instead of wading through a sea of information that may not be reliable and in some cases may be harmful, here is what your vet wants you to know. I'm Dr. Brittany Lancelotti, board-certified veterinary dermatology specialist. Join me to get the information you're looking for to care for your pet. If you're curious about your pet, then your vet wants you to know. Welcome everyone to today's episode of Your Vet Wants You to Know. Today is the first in a series of episodes on different types of toxins that your animal might be exposed to. I'm joined today by Dr. Christine Clippen, who was a guest on the feline lower urinary tract disease and urinary obstruction episode previously. So I'm very thankful that she offered to come back and do more episodes with me and share some more of her incredible knowledge um, in an emergency room setting with all of you out there. She's going to be talking over the next few episodes about common household toxins that can affect your dog and your cat. And we had such a great discussion about the dog toxins that we decided to break up the episode into two parts because the episode is so jam-packed with really good information. I didn't want to overwhelm people in just one episode. So it's a really exciting episode that we've split up into two. So without any further ado, please enjoy part one of two of Dog Toxins. Dr. Clippen, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and why you are so familiar with different types of toxins that their pets might come in contact with? I am an emergency doctor. So unfortunately, toxin ingestion is probably one of the number one things that come in through my emergency room. I have been an emergency doctor for about 12 years. I graduated from Colorado State in 2009 and I currently practice in a very, very large volume primary care hospital in Washington, D.C. Excellent. So you have a lot of these cases under your belt and very familiar with toxins and what they can do to our pets. So I'm very happy that you'll be sharing all of that knowledge with pet owners today. Tell us a little bit about why it's important for pet owners to be aware of these toxins and what they might do to their animal. So a lot of us will think of the time when our dog got into the Halloween candy stash and made a big mess and probably had vomiting and diarrhea and everyone kind of laughed about it. And yes, a good majority of the toxins that our pets will get into may not necessarily have significant consequences, um, especially if caught early. But there are those that can have significant consequences and there's not, you know, warning signs on some of these things for our pets. And so unfortunately, I have seen pretty devastating consequences in not knowing what things that are around us could cause our pets harm. So tell me a little bit about something that, you know, may have been preventable, something that you've seen in your emergency room. 
So a couple of years ago, I'm um, here in Washington, D.C., we had the Million Women March where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people came down to the Washington Mall to march. My and mom went a, to that, actually. Yeah, yeah. It was a pretty spectacular sort of thing to be around. And I, I worked that night. And the communities in the D.C. area opened up their homes to have people come in from around the city. And I remember a, a case um, where a dog got into a bag of medications that someone brought with them and didn't really think much of it. The pills were in one of those little pill sorters and it was in a plastic baggie and in the person's luggage. And the dog ingested such a large quantity of ibuprofen that it presented to me in a coma. Oh and goodness. and it was so terrifying for the pet. It was so terrifying for the pet owner. You know, I felt for them. And thankfully, that dog made a full recovery and left the hospital within two days, which was mind blowing. That's amazing. What a miraculous recovery and, and well done to you and to all of the staff who I'm sure worked incredibly hard to give that dog a chance. So today we're going to talk about a number of different toxins that dogs might ingest from within the home. It is really a great idea to have the number of your emergency veterinarian as well as the ASPCA poison control or pet poison hotline programmed into your phone. Those numbers are incredibly valuable in an emergency situation. Your veterinarian might know some of the common toxins, but the professionals at Poison Control will have the most knowledge. Your vet may have you call Poison Control so that they can consult with them. And there is a fee associated with most veterinary-specific Poison Control hotlines. The human poison control hotlines, unfortunately, don't have the same accurate information because they're focused on toxins that affect people. Certainly, when I was working emergency as an intern, that ASPCA poison control hotline was on speed dial for me. They are incredibly knowledgeable, not just for pet owners, but for veterinarians as well, um, because they have so much research behind all the different toxins. So definitely an invaluable resource. Let's talk a little bit with Dr. Clippin today about the top 10 most common toxins for dogs. What do you think number one is? Chocolate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, chocolate is definitely year-round, but we see it around some of the the popular holidays. So Halloween, of course, mm -hmm. Christmas, Easter, Valentine's Day. These are all the times that we may have more goodies in the home. Mm -hmm. And dogs are notoriously getting into the kid's stash or even taking stuff off of the counter. Sure. So why is chocolate toxic? And what should pet owners know about chocolate and how it affects the dogs? And what do you think they should do if they see their dog eat it? So there are a couple active ingredients within chocolate that act as stimulants. So they act a little bit like caffeine. The darker the chocolate, the more potent it is. And so the less the pet actually needs to eat. At lower doses, we can see dogs develop signs of vomiting, um, diarrhea, and at higher doses, we will start to see excitability, maybe excessive panting, tremors, an elevated heart rate, and elevated blood pressure. And then at very, very high doses, and thankfully, I've only seen a few of these cases in my career, I've actually seen dogs have seizures as a result of getting into very dark chocolate like Baker's chocolate. 
mm-hmm. central nervous system signs, and again, even potentially coma and passing away as a result. But thankfully, I don't happen to have seen that too often. How long would you say it takes for the chocolate to start causing some of these signs? Most of the time with chocolate ingestion, we'll typically start to see signs within about four to six hours. And we still may recommend inducing vomiting or trying to what we consider decontaminate a pet within six to eight hours after ingestion to kind of get everything out of their system. A lot of times the way that we make our decisions in regards to whether or not uh, a pet needs to be seen is based upon a calculated amount and the most up-to-date body weight on that pet. Do you have kind of a, a good rule of thumb for pet owners to follow if they're worried about how much chocolate their animal has eaten? Yeah. So a a rule of thumb is about one ounce of milk chocolate per pound of body weight and with dark chocolate. And again, it still depends upon that cacao percentage that they'll sometimes list on the darker chocolates. It's a little bit closer to half an ounce per pound. So if there's any question as to how much chocolate the animal has eaten, that's a good rule to follow. But also having that number for poison control and calling them, letting them know how much you think they've eaten, what you think the animal's weight is, that's going to be a great option for you as far as you're concerned with your pet. Let's talk a little bit about something that I've seen more and more in recent years, and that's marijuana toxicity. Tell us a little bit about marijuana toxicity in dogs. As marijuana becomes legal in the jurisdictions around us, we are seeing more and more dogs getting into owner's supply. And in fact, there was a statistic with ASPCA poison control and pet poison hotline that they were seeing calls up over 200, 300% from a number of years ago. So it's a much more common problem than, than we see. It's not a crime if your pet gets into it. And honestly, as an emergency doctor, I just need folks to let me know um, Mm -hmm. ahead of time just to make sure that it's not something else that I need to be concerned about. But they'll typically get into either the end of uh, a joint um, or a rolled product or even edibles. It seems like I've seen more and more dogs get into edible products, especially if they've been made into candies or cookies and, and that sort of thing. And then you also have to worry about chocolate toxicity if you're dealing with brownies in that situation. Yes. Yes. So what are some things that the pet owner might see and how soon after ingesting marijuana might they start to see those signs? So signs usually will begin within about two to four hours post-ingestion, and owners may notice dilated pupils. They may notice that an animal is starting to dribble urine. One of the things that I see most commonly are kind of what looks like tremors of the head and the neck, or they are walking not coordinated. So they almost look like they're drunk. Mm -hmm. And then another really specific sign is generalized sensitivity to light, sound, and movement. Most dogs, it seems like in my experience, are usually better in 12 to 18 hours post-ingestion, whereas with the edible products, again, because they're taking in usually a much more potent product, I have seen some dogs that will have clinical signs last upwards of about two days. Do you have specific dogs where you might be a little bit more concerned uh, that they've ingested marijuana? 
Yeah, I'm usually concerned about the very small and the very big. So the very small patients, I'm always concerned may not be able to regulate their body temperatures, their blood pressure, their blood glucose, because again, it is a depressant. So it is going to slow things down. And then I'm also concerned about those really, really big dogs, because if you have a, a big dog who may have difficulty walking, I'm concerned about the threat of injury. So falling down the stairs or even not having an owner be able to physically pick up a large dog to get him to the hospital if necessary. Sure. What are some other things that you might be concerned about if you're seeing these clinical signs, but maybe the owner hasn't seen the dog ingest marijuana? Because the marijuana ingestion is not always witnessed, it can mimic some other kind of concerning conditions. And so things like low blood sugar, even potentially neurologic concerns, so you know seizure disorders or central nervous system diseases, it can mimic marijuana ingestion. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it is so important that if there is the potential for an exposure, it's much easier for people to let me know that up front because I may tailor my recommendations for monitoring for these particular patients. Yeah, we don't care what you do in your free time. We just want to be here to help the pet. How about some of the -the over-the-counter medications that people very commonly have in the house? Which ones do you get specifically concerned about? So the ones that I see most frequently are ibuprofen and some of the class of drugs we consider non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So ibuprofen, naproxen, those class of drugs, as well as acetaminophen or Tylenol. And sometimes these ingestions can be accidental. So all of us have dropped pills on the floor. It happens. And usually there's an animal right beneath your feet, thinks that it's crumbs or something. But then I also will sometimes have well-intentioned folks not realize that there are very specific differences of dogs and cats compared to people giving these medications to pets. And so those are the two major groups that I see with the -the over-the-counter medications. So what are some things that might happen if an animal either accidentally ingests these particular medications or the owner gives it thinking that it it could potentially help with pain? What are you worried about with those animals? A lot of it is very dose dependent. And so again, we will try to calculate how much an animal had been exposed to compared to their body weight. And at lower doses, we can see things like GI upset, GI ulceration, vomiting, potentially diarrhea. I have seen some dogs develop serious enough stomach ulcers that they can cause perforation of their stomach. But where I start to get even more concerned are when we start to reach the kidney toxic doses. These medications, the non-steroidals, these can actually cause kidney failure in patients. And they don't happen right away. It can take a couple of days for them to have those effects. And so again, if it's something that's witnessed, it's better for us to intervene early rather than to wait and see what happens. Sure. And definitely following through with your family veterinarian or with the emergency veterinarian that you've worked with to monitor those kidney values would be very important as well. What about acetaminophen? Because that's a little bit different than ibuprofen and naproxen. 
So the Tylenol acetaminophen um, does work a little bit differently. And when we see dogs get into toxic amounts of acetaminophen, they'll typically start to develop signs within one to four hours after ingestion. Some people will notice that a pet will start to act very lethargic, very depressed. They may develop an elevated respiratory rate, so they may start breathing harder. One of the things that we see very commonly is that they do start to have changes in the color of their mucous membrane. So again, if you were to roll down their eyelid and you would look at the pink portion of the eye, or you'd roll up their lips to look at their gums, they should normally be nice and pink like your fingernail beds. And in these situations, we start to see almost a blue to a purple color. And what's happening is the acetaminophen is interrupting the ability of the red blood cell to carry oxygen to the tissues of the body. Um, So it works a little bit different, but it can still have pretty profound um, consequences. Tell me a little bit about how that would be treated. So again, we may still try to decontaminate them. So make them vomit, maybe follow with doses of a medication called activated charcoal to help bind anything that's still remaining in the GI tract. There are some medications that we can give within a hospital setting to try to help with some of that oxidative stress and vitamin C. There's some other ones that are usually recommended by poison control with some pretty close monitoring. I have had some pets need to have blood transfusions as a result of getting into acetaminophen and some of them have been hospitalized for several days. So it really depends upon, you know, at what point do we get them coming into the emergency room and what sort of effects are already being seen. Great. So a great reminder that as soon as you notice that the animal has eaten something, that getting on the phone with poison control, getting them to your emergency veterinarian is a really good way to minimize the severity of this potential toxin that they've eaten. I want to move on to toxin number four, which is something that my husband and I are absolutely terrified about in our house. So we have two small children and they love grapes and raisins. And in our household, grapes and raisins are an out of the house food. So if we are going on a hike somewhere or if we are you know, taking a long car ride, we will cut up our grapes and, and raisins and bring them out of the house because we are terrified of our three dogs getting exposed to grapes or raisins. And I know a lot of owners are not as familiar that this is a toxin to be worried about. So tell us a little bit about grape and raisin toxicity. Grape and raisin toxicity, we would actually consider almost a quote unquote newer sort of concern over the last 15 years. I remember I spent some time when I was in veterinary school at ASPCA Poison Control working with the toxicologist while I was still in school and learning grapes and raisins were poisonous. And I remember as a kid feeding my dog grapes and raisins, and I never knew that it was a concern. And the specialists at Poison Control started to realized that there was a common thread and started to rack up numbers of cases of dogs developing kidney failure with ingestions. And they weren't sure what about grapes and raisins um, were toxic because they're not toxic to a lot of other species. 
and they weren't sure if it was the flesh or the the skin or the juice. And the challenge with this is that we didn't know if it is dose related, meaning you eat 10 grapes and you're more likely to get signs, or it was something called idiosyncratic. And idiosyncratic means that it's an unpredictable sort of reaction. So now we treat all grapes and raisins as a potentially serious ingestion. Because you don't know who's going to react to even the smallest amount. Correct. And so if we are going to start to see clinical signs of grape and raisin ingestion, we'll typically see about 24 to 48 hours after ingestion. And pet owners may notice things like vomiting, not eating, lethargy, dehydration, as well as maybe an increased thirst um, and increased urinations. So our standard of care at our hospital now is that any sort of grape and raisin we are still trying to recommend pet owners come in and be seen on the emergency service. And I I know that there's been some recent developments as far as a better understanding of grape and raisin toxicity. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So this is super exciting news because it's data that's come out probably like February 2021, so still very, very recent. And several of the toxicologists at ASPCA Poison Control have started to determine that there may be a specific ingredient called tartaric acid that can be the key to toxicity. Winemakers have understood this for years because that is where some of the science in winemaking comes into play. And what they have found is that different grapes have different amounts of this tartaric acid. And that also may be an influence in why some dogs develop signs and some dogs can eat pounds and pounds of grapes and never have a problem. So the research is coming out. And so it's super exciting from an emergency perspective so that you're not having to panic and eat grapes outside of your house with your kiddos (laughs) with the feel of, oh my God, they're going to drop one and I have to rush to the emergency room. So this is really exciting news. That is really exciting. I was thrilled when I saw that there was some more information coming out and we'll definitely keep a close eye on what's coming out of the ASPCA poison control as far as the research with grapes. I'm really excited about that. Let's talk a little bit about xylitol because I know this is something that is a lot more readily available now. So tell us a little bit about what xylitol is and what pet owners should know. So xylitol is a naturally occurring substance that's usually used as a sugar substitute. So it can be made into a white powder, and so it looks and tastes like sugar. Previously, we used to see it in a lot of diabetic cooking and baking. So you can find xylitol sugar that you can bake with. You would find it in what would be considered sugar-free treats, sugar-free candies, again, geared towards the diabetic population. But the reason why it's become a little bit more sneaky is that it is being approved much more frequently in not only the sugar-free gum and breath mints, but in some of the supplements. So I will sometimes take melatonin at night to help me sleep. And xylitol is actually one of the first ingredients in that supplement. 
We're also starting to see xylitol pop up in other sorts of products, things like peanut butter, which I know a lot of pet owners will use to give treats Mm -hmm. and to give pills. And so it's being found in a lot more products than it did, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So dogs are becoming exposed to it a lot more commonly. And so what happens if, say, a dog eats something that has xylitol, like, you know, a pack of sugar-free gum, or, you know, say the owner accidentally gets this xylitol peanut butter, what's going on in the body that the dog can't process this? So in humans and dogs, the way that our blood sugar is normally regulated is the release of insulin by the pancreas. So when we have a release of insulin by the pancreas, it causes the sugar within our bloodstream to be able to go into cells. And the cells then use that sugar for metabolism and the things that they do on a day-to-day basis. Xylitol in people does not overstimulate the pancreas. And so that's why when we eat xylitol containing products, we don't experience those fluctuations in our blood sugar. But in dogs, if they eat something that contains xylitol, not only is the xylitol quickly absorbed into the bloodstream, it causes the pancreas to release a huge amount of insulin by the pancreas. And then what happens is that the normal blood sugar in the bloodstream will go rushing into cells. But if you don't have a diabetic patient, those blood sugars can plummet so quickly that these pets can now become hypoglycemic or have decreased blood sugar. And so if the animal becomes hypoglycemic, if their blood sugar drops rapidly, what types of things are their bodies going to experience? symptoms can happen pretty quickly. And so I have seen some patients develop signs within 15 to 30 minutes of eating. And what um, signs of hypoglycemia in a dog may look like are things like vomiting, maybe weakness. Again, they may look a little bit drunk or have difficulty standing. They may just be very sleepy um, or very lethargic. And again, tremors. I've even seen some of these patients present for seizure-like activity. What happens if the dog has eaten xylitol? What would you recommend that the pet owner do? How is this going to be addressed in the hospital? Normally, the first thing that I'll have my technical staff do is check a blood sugar because depending upon the amount that they got into, I may still want to induce vomiting, but I don't want to induce vomiting in a pet that's already showing clinical signs. If I have a pet that's already showing clinical signs, these are the ones that I'm likely going to admit for a period of time so that I can provide them that glucose, provide them that sugar support through intravenous fluids to help control their blood sugar until it works its way out of their system. Perfect. Join me again next week for part two of two when we continue our discussion about household toxins for dogs with Dr. Christine Clippen. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. I'll see you on your next visit with Your Vet Wants You to Know.